0: The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz
1: Institute for Social and Economic Research.
0: Hi, this is Sarah Nuttall for the Wiser Podcast. In this week's episode, Annika Rautenbach discusses well known Southern African writer Bessie Head's time in Serowe, a place once called the largest village on the continent in what was then the Bechuana Land Protectorate and is today Botswana. Head was there as a refugee from apartheid South Africa and worked in the village as a writer and a volunteer. Rautenbach takes us into the Bessie Head Room at the Karma III Memorial Museum in Seroe and reflects from there on Head's eclectic cast of literary interlocutors. She goes on to discuss Head's voluntary work for agricultural development associations and her complex navigation of what she calls ecological and cultural zones in her life and writing. This leads to a discussion of the figure of the volunteer in Botswana more broadly. The the podcast turns in its final part to how Head could be out of step with the political orthodoxies of her time and her views ultimately of a literature and a life practice, which was what Rautenbach terms absorbent in ways she explains here.
1: It's the 1960s, beginning of the armed struggle against apartheid. A South African refugee, the flinty and charismatic Makaya, jumps the Botswana border fence in the middle of the night. He runs as fast as his legs will carry him through the bush until he is caught off guard by a strange, ethereal sound. The air was full of the sound of bells, thousands and thousands of bells, tinkling with a purposeful, monotonous rhythm. Yet there was not a living thing in sight to explain where the sound was coming from. He was quite sure that around him and in front of him were trees and more trees that each time he approached too near, ripped at his clothes. But how to explain the bells, unearthly sounding bells in an apparently unlived in wasteland? This is an early scene in When Rain Clouds Gather, Bessie Head's first novel published in 1968. The sound comes from the brass bells tied around the necks of cattle, her protagonist soon learns. Cattle are allowed to stray deep into the bush, and the bells are a way to keep track of them in this apparently unlived-in wasteland. Almost 60 years ago, Bessie Head arrived as a refugee in Serowe in what was then still the Beshwana Land Protectorate. Once famously the largest village on the continent, Serowe is distinguished for being the capital of the Bamangwato people. Their regent and founder, Kama the Great, was one of the paramount chiefs to negotiate the country's protectorate status with the British, while his grandson, Seretse, forced to give up the regency so that he could marry a white Englishwoman, would go on to become the first president of Botswana. This illustrious history doesn't make the village feel any less rural. Head describes it as a quiet backwater, two-thirds desert and a third arid bush and scrubland, with hazy distant horizons that disappear in the dry heat. A place of the rain wind, but rarely of the rain. Today, visitors still treat Serowe as a pit stop between Gaborone and Mahon, mostly ignorant of the flat Victorian building of the Kama Three Memorial Museum, which houses a small ethnographic collection and the papers of Botswana's most influential writer. In the Bessie headroom, the interior of her home has been lovingly recreated, The single bed with its brown and black striped woolen blanket, the patterned linoleum floor, her wooden desk with its forest green silver reed typewriter in pride of place, an ashtray in the corner. Above the desk, three mounted bookshelves hold some of the resources on which her writing drew. A history of Botswana, a resource pack for teachers, for example or Kalahari Cattle Posts, a regional study of hunter-gatherers, pastoralists, and agriculturalists in the Western Sundveld region, published for the Botswana government in 1978. Eclectically, these are accompanied by a booklet of Van Gogh postcards and a collection of D.H. Lawrence, who she described as the great love of her life. In a letter she writes, I built a bookshelf for him at last and the magazines and letters I can't bear to throw away. It was in this home which she named Rain Clouds and which she built with the proceeds of her first novel where Head wrote what Isabel Hoffme has described as her drought-resistant literature, stories acutely attuned to scarcity of water and wealth. Her writing reflects a conservatory attitude in more ways than one. In a letter to the American poet, Nikki Giovanni, she describes her process. I depend a lot on my feelers or intuition, most times indeed like a water animal, absorbing nutrition slowly and letting a lot pass me by. Some of this nutrition included religious scriptures, missionary archives, and Black feminist literature from the United States. Her reading material depended on whatever books and periodicals her friends could send her, which she would collect weekly by bicycle from the Saroe Post Office. In the village, Head was well known as a volunteer for agricultural development associations. She taught participants how to grow vegetables in a high evaporation environment. The work is fascinating, she writes to an American friend. There is nothing and we make something where nothing has been before. Villagers would come to her house to buy seedlings or see her cycling into town with a basket of vegetables for sale. The constant negotiation across ecological and cultural zones is a through-line of both her fiction and non-fiction. New methods and technologies come to be adopted through a process of cultural dialogue and exchange, as volunteers from Europe, Canada, and the United States introduce them to the Botswana, and the Botswana take what is useful to improve traditional methods. In When Rain Clouds Gather, An ambitious volunteer by the name of Gilbert wants to make farming more resilient in the arid village of Golema Midi, a fictional stand-in for Sarue. He wants to introduce controlled grazing to give the land a chance to replenish itself, but he can do so only with the buy-in of the villagers, only by gaining their trust and persuading them to break the customary prohibition against fencing communal land. Just as he can be successful only by understanding the ecology of this arid environment, he must grasp the nuances of the cultural system in which he operates, a process which is helped along by his partnership with Makaya, the South African refugee, and a village elder, Dinorego. While the village absorbs Gilbert's teachings, Gilbert is in turn absorbed by the village when he marries Dinorego's daughter. Kade drew upon the granular nuances of interpersonal dynamics she observed in a village where, alongside the Botswana, foreign volunteers constituted a major proportion of the population. Along with the locals, they became her friends and interlocutors and formed part of the constellation of interviews she conducted for Soroe, Village of the Rainwind, an idiosyncratic social history published in 1981. It was, as she described in a letter, a long and detailed account of how Soroa people built up the village with their own hands. She was taken aback by her American publisher's resistance to it. Her editor told her that she had interviewed too many, quote, white settlers. Actually, says Head, they were British IVS, VSO, and Quaker volunteers. In an almost absent-minded way, she tells Giovanni, I wrote back stating that there was a world of difference between a volunteer and a white settler, a white settler was here to exploit the land and its people, and I, as a Black person, would not get near them because they didn't do the things that volunteers did, and I had worked with volunteers. Also, she goes on, due to Nkrumah's book, Neocolonialism, in which he described volunteers as the imperialists who are coming in at the back door, most African governments held off from their services, except the crazy Botswana government, which is out of step with everything. So, volunteers have worked in Botswana in large numbers, and in Saroe. Without a hint of irony, she adds, why, they almost run the show. Her line about Nkrumah is an example of how Head, like her adopted country, remained out of step with the current political orthodoxies. She sensed in Africa's liberatory movements a masculinist power struggle that was ultimately self-serving, and an exclusionary attitude at the expense of the so-called underdog, refugees, women, people of mixed backgrounds, folks who had in some way been excommunicated or disowned. It was an aesthetic as much as a moral objection. In many of the social upheavals she witnessed, she sensed in their attending violence a loss of moral authority, a backwash of what she called evil that muddied their ultimate ends. Her philosophical project was largely concerned with the distinction between the ugliness of evil and the converse beauty of good a distinction she described as a razor's edge that must be navigated by the individual alone, without the banister of God or any kind of dogma. Her struggles with schizophrenia led to a psychotic episode in the late 60s and a months-long stay in a mental hospital. What followed was her harrowing autobiographical novel, A Question of Power, in which she attempted to process the hallucinations she experienced at the time, nightly visitations by a series of demon-like figures who verbally torture her. Memories of apartheid South Africa are overlaid with visions of Nazi Germany and xenophobic tribalism in Africa, different expressions on a kind of spectrum of evil. In her psychological torment and beyond, head experienced language as a mighty and physical force and danger lurked in the grandiose abstractions of liberation slogans. It could also be healing, The art of dialogue was essential to her aesthetic and moral philosophy. In a letter to Robert Tsubukwe, she writes, there are so many subtleties, so many ways of capturing people's hearts and changing them, that the widest and most generous heart is needed in one's dealings with mankind in general. I assumed you were my blood brother in that sense, and that, like Darwin, you had spotted life's incredible capacity to evolve. What moved her was the quiet authority of a spirit generous enough to embrace all of Africa, to fold difference within itself, to absorb it. As an antidote to everything a question of power represented, Head began research for her ethnographic work, Soroe Village of the Rainwind, interviewing 94 people, much of it through a Setswana interpreter. This process of intensive conversation with the people around her was a chance for her to break with the solitary mental anguish which gave rise to the novel. It was also a chance for her to articulate a unique vision of African cosmopolitanism through three portraits that tell a story of Saroe, Kama the Great, his son, Shekedi Kama, and Patrick van Rensburg, a white South African-born activist and fellow refugee who overlapped with Head in Saroe, The thread connecting these three men is educational progress and social reform. More generally, it's her recurring themes of dialogue, absorption, adaptation, and evolution. Kama's conversion to Christianity led to the introduction of several progressive social reforms. Under his leadership, the Bamangwato became a refuge for people displaced from other ethnic groups, his rule demonstrated a dance of diplomacy that never relinquished dignity or control, not to other ethnic groups, nor to missionaries, nor to the British. One continually gets the impression, Head writes, that he was deliberately reversing the tide that had swallowed up and submerged all other black peoples. Kama, who stared down the hostility of the British authorities of his time, led the establishment of several primary schools and one village. One college. Patrick van Rensburg, the third and final portrait, is is also the most surprising. Having worked for the South African government, Head writes, he was in the position of seeing the true hell of South Africa from the inside. In her note on him, she writes, The greatness of the man was that the day came when he simply said to himself, that's enough. Then, like Karma, he came seemingly quite accidentally to Sarue. And produced the opposite of greed, horror, and loathsome oppression of people. He founded an unconventional secondary school, Swaneng, and an initiative that focused on training young people in technical skills, known as the Brigades. Like Kama, van Rensburg is described as reversing a kind of tide, but from a different position. He appeared as the bearded character Eugene in A Question of Power. In her descriptions of this character, Head goes as far as to gesture that Africanness is an orientation or attitude beyond origin, ethnicity, race, nationality, or even heritage. She writes, In his pamphlet writing, the Eugene man totally blurred the dividing line between the elite who had the means for education and the illiterate who had none. Education was for all. He always turned up with something for everyone. In this respect, he was African, not a white man and the subtlety of it spread to his conduct in everyday life. She had spent a day at his house. At lunchtime, a group of labourers had walked into his house and sat down at the table with him. They were Botswana. They had picked up their spoons, quietly bent their heads, and eaten their food in a humble manner. He was so identical with them in gesture and posture that, startled, Elizabeth thought, how is it his movements and gestures are so African? It is poetic that the stateless Bessie head should have ended up in Siroë with its history of absorbing outsiders. She recognized something transcendent and slow, quiet, quotidian labor that honors human dignity. It is a vision of a dynamic and transformative exchange in which the distinctions of those involved almost come to seem beside the point. What matters is the attunement of each to the others. Goodness is manifest in her recurring theme of what she calls self-help, development projects built and run by the people of Sarore, often with the assistance of foreign help, which later moved on. But in an essay, God and the Underdog, she clarifies her position on aid and assistance. Africa is going to rise to the height of a great civilization, and this is going to be done in the last resort with African brains. She ends this essay by invoking a biblical Pharaoh, a figure that encapsulates her vision for this great absorbent civilization of the past and the future. The waters nourished him. All the birds in the air made their nests in his boughs and all the beasts in the field brought forth their young under his branches. Beneath his shadow dwelt all the great nations. He was most beautiful in his greatness because of the length of his roots because his roots bathed in great waters.